welcome to a guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, This Brave Nation, Counterspin, the BBC, and The Onion Radio News. The nomination process for this year's podcast awards are underway. Please go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com for details on how to nominate the show. Peter Ferreira is with the American uh, Civil Rights Union. He's our general counsel. And we're going to talk about hate crimes legislation. Peter, welcome to the Young Turks. Glad to be here. All right, first let's uh, explain to the good people at home that might not be familiar with your group. The American Civil Rights Union doesn't really care about all civil rights, do you? You only care about guns and uh, and religion. <laughs> well, the founding documents say that our purpose is to protect all the civil rights, uh, all the rights in the Bill of Rights, and uh, not just those that are politically correct or serve a particular ideology. So we were formed exactly with that in mind, that we want to serve all the, uh, right. all the rights. And we feel that the ACLU uh, does not do that, that they just... Uh, 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 they're 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 not interested really in freedom of religion or property rights or uh, or Second Amendment rights. They're just interested in what they think serves their liberal left wing agenda. Right, that's great, Peter. I went on your website uh, to check out the organization a little bit more, and uh, I saw two interesting things. One, it seems like eighty percent of the sites devoted to attacking the ACLU. Two, uh, I saw an article written by you uh, saying, "Ah, the Geneva Conventions. Who needs them?" And it didn't seem like that was really a pro-civil rights argument. <laughs> That's like saying that if you favor the Yankees and you don't like the Mets, you think the Mets should be thrown out of uh, baseball. I mean, uh, the Geneva Convention applies where it applies, and it's very good where it applies, and we need it where it applies. Where where does it? Where, 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 does not apply. Does not apply to terrorists. Never did. Right. What? Do <laughs> it. Of course, it shouldn't do. Does everybody? Is everybody? Hey, Peter. Is ever, Peter. 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 Is everybody fighting yes. us a terrorist? Everybody fighting? No, uh, I don't know of anybody fighting us other than terrorists right now. I don't think we're at war. With what about country. what about Iraqi armed military? So are, 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 are Iraqi Sunnis are those terrorists? Terrorists are people who uh, 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 attack civilians, target civilians, do not have uniforms, are not part of a military command. Why would you want constitutional protections, the Geneva protections, for saboteurs who come to the United States to blow people uh, up? Well, Roosevelt I... summarily executed them. He didn't give them Geneva yeah. Convention, right? Yeah, That's he... when liberals were liberals, uh, as opposed to today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, by the way... But you're talking about uh, six guys that were caught that were actually spies. Spies are a different issue. By the way, uh, hold on. But the great majority, the overwhelming majority of Nazis, we gave Geneva Conventions protections to. Is that right? Well, of course, because they were. So Nazis get Geneva protection because they had terrorists. Because they had those nice black uniforms. They fit the requirements of the treaty. Right. Right. The Nazis got the protections because they fit they the wear requirements nice of the uniforms. treaty. Somebody who runs around the country with with bombs to blow up civilians who's not in uniform is a saboteur, and we do with him the same thing George Washington did with them. He lined, he put like put a, he put a blindfold around them, tied their arms, stood them next to the tree, and he shot them. That's what George Washington did. By the way, I just would like to point out, and this is all a prelude to discussing something else. But Peter Ferrer is from the American Civil Rights yeah. Union. By the way, I just you know you brought up. Uh, you, by the way, you brought up FDR. You said that's when liberals were liberals. I like to point out that Teddy Roosevelt, who was a conservative, believed in the Constitution. That's when conservatives were smart. Okay. All right, Peter. So, look, on the hate crimes issue, by the way, you know, you say terrorists are people who target civilians. So I assume when we dropped a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and killed 100,000 civilians, where right, do we yeah. fit? Where do we fit in? 
Well, that was part of an armed military uniform command structure. Oh, I see. So the requirements Peter, of the Geneva Convention. All right, Peter, uh, i got to ask you one last so, question on this. Do you think that we're just like al-Qaeda because we dropped the nuclear no, bomb? Nobody, no, nobody. By the way, don't even start with it. Nobody thinks we're like al-Qaeda. Okay. All right, but I, so, uh, okay, but I, do, well, so I have a question. What the heck it is you're saying. No, no, I'm trying to figure out what you're saying. So if Osama bin Laden and those 1911 hijackers, if they'd worn a pretty uniform while they targeted civilians like we did in Hiroshima, would it have been kosher? Not kosher, no, but they would have had different uh, different rights, and they would have been covered by different treaties. So let me ask because you this, Peter. Peter, we're not, we're, we're nobody's comparing us to. If they were part of the military of Afghanistan, for example, and they and they and the military of Afghanistan ordered them to fly these planes into the towers, and they did so in uniform, well, then they would be prisoners of war. Let me ask you this, Peter. I, you know, Jenk and I both agree we were glad we invaded Afghanistan. We think that was a terrific idea. Um, when we invade another country, why do we get to determine? what uniform they wear. I mean, we went into Afghanistan, and now we round guys up on the battlefield and say, you weren't wearing a uniform. Well, they were there first. Don't they get to wear whatever they want? I mean, this argument about the uniforms, it's ridiculous. And deep down, you know it's ridiculous. Wait a minute now. It's in the Geneva Convention. You apply the terms. You read the convention. You apply the terms to what, what the language says. You don't make up other stuff and say, well, it applies here and applies there when the language doesn't apply there. So the, the uniform stuff comes out of the Geneva Convention. You got to use the, if you want to apply the Geneva Convention, you got to use the language of the Geneva Convention. That's where it comes from. That's what the countries have all agreed to. You think that's, that's the most important? Is that the most important part of the Geneva Convention? Just in your mind, it seems like it is. You love talking about it. Not the most important thing, but it doesn't matter. All the elements that are in the convention are in the convention, and they all need to be applied. And it, 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 by its own you know what? Terms, it turns out. It, it turns out just just for the record, it turns out we agree that Geneva conventions need to be applied. Yeah, Geneva. By its own terms, it doesn't apply to terrorists. No, I know. So that's so, why. If so they, why would you want to apply it to terrorists? Why uh, would you uh, want to? No, I got you. Our positions are uh, both clear here. If they're wearing pretty uniforms, we can't torture them. If they're not wearing the uniforms we demand of them. Tortures rock and roll, baby. Right. Now, I'd like to remind everybody, Peter Ferreira is from the American Civil Rights Union. Okay, so, Peter, let's get to hate crimes where we actually agree with you 50%, believe it or not. Here's a, uh, here's a, here's a question I have for you. Now, you're, you're against the hate crimes legislation because you think, you know, what people believe shouldn't be part of the crime. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument. But i got to ask you, uh, people, when I make that argument, people say it back to me, and I'd love to see what your thoughts on it are. Hey, wait a minute. We consider a lot of things when uh, somebody's uh, up for, uh, for a severity of the crime. Is it murder? Does that, And if it's murder, does it involve intent? Premeditation, what, right. Of premeditation. And, uh, and what were they thinking? And so what they were thinking and what they were intending are, are often part of a crime. So why is it wrong when it's part of a crime when in hate crimes legislation? Well, I mean, those are things that go to state of mind uh, to fit the elements of the crime. Uh, before you actually have a crime, you have to have some criminal intent. So it's not a good argument to say we shouldn't consider anything that's in the guy's mind. That That's too broad because elements of crime are in the guy's mind. But when they are uh, items of, uh, I hate to use the word political philosophy for some of these uh, attitudes, uh, but... There, there are matters outside the traditional mens rea or criminal intent, which just involve their social attitudes, basically. Uh, then that's not part of the crime. And why should a, a when a guy when a guy beats up a, a senior citizen? Say you have a, a seventy, you have an eighty-year-old woman, single woman, and you have a group of uh, thugs, and they decide they want to beat her up because they don't like old people. 
Now suppose you got the same situation, you got an idiot old woman, and this group of thugs decides they're going to beat her up because the Redskins just lost and they're angry about the Redskins losing. Well, if you have a hate crime thing, then in the first case they get a bigger a bigger penalty uh, because they're doing it because they hate old people. Then in the second case, when they're doing it just because they're angry that the Redskins lost, well, it should be the same penalty in each case. That but that particular social attitude that they have in their mind shouldn't make a difference as to the penalty. Everybody needs to be have equal protection under the law, another uh, solid liberal principle. And uh, so, so these kind of social attitudes that they have, have in their mind, that should not be relevant to the penalty. The penalty should be stiff and strong for violating people's uh, individual rights, but, human rights to be free from violence. But, Peter, you know that in general, and I, look, I, I tend to agree with you, um, but uh, we don't have any problems in this country in general with violence against the elderly as an epidemic. And certainly, as a Redskin fan, I can tell you that I, uh, I live with relative impunity. Uh, no one comes after me uh, whether the Redskins win or lose. It's mean. So, I mean, but the fact is, uh, gay people in this country and black people in this country are targeted and have been targeted. And surely, you know, that uh, uh, because of their race and their sexual orientation. So I, I actually tend to agree with you on the argument. But your example was silly. Well, it's not silly. It just illustrates the point. But let's take a real-world example. The black person who was dragged to death behind an automobile uh, in Texas. Those people who killed him, well, in my book, they deserve the death penalty. So what more are you going to do by labeling it a hate crime? What you need to have is very stiff penalties for violence and not penalties that say, well, this group of people... If you do anything to them, you're going to get a stricter penalty than if you do something to some other group of people. Now you're violating a fundamental equal protection principle, fundamental liberal principle, equal protection under the law. Uh, Peter, I understand that point of view. Let me see what you think, though, about as quickly as we can here. uh, Philosophically, uh, in a a democracy, can people not agree to do that? Uh, And we're talking to Peter Ferrer, by the way, the general counsel of the American Civil Rights Union. They say, hey, listen, it's an 80-year-old woman, and she's Jewish, and they kill her because she's Jewish. That really repulses us as a society, even more so than just killing an 80-year-old woman. Or let's not killing, because then it's death penalty either way, but or life in prison either way, but assaulting an 80-year-old woman. Can we not decide as a democracy and as a society that we are more repulsed for whatever reason? And you might not be, and I might not be, but that as a society we're a more, more repulsed if it's uh, for racial reasons. Is that not perfectly legitimate? Well, see, the thing is you might say if the victim is uh, a senior citizen, uh, then the crime, the penalty will be harsher, but that would not be a hate crime. You wouldn't be punishing because of the Right, but uh, what if they're uh, Jewish or black or, or gay or lesbian or whatever it might be? Why can't society well, I, say I would think, we are more would, repelled by that? I would argue that you'd want to make it on a broader basis. You'd want to say the degree of harm caused, if a greater degree of harm was caused, then you would have a more severe penalty. So I would not want to see society divided up and say, okay, if the crime's against a gay person, here's the penalty. If it's against a straight person, there's a different penalty. If the crime's against one race, it's a different penalty. If it's against another race, right. it's another penalty. I wouldn't want to divide society up like that, but you could do it on the basis of harm, which would be something that would be equally applicable to everybody. So if you commit more harm, uh, then, uh, you know, the greater harm to the victim, then you're going to get a more severe penalty. That would be a nice, uh, even-handed way of doing it. All right, Peter, we're essentially out of time uh, in 30 seconds or less because you, you are the general counsel for the American Civil Rights Union, the 1954 Civil Rights Act, uh, good or bad? Good. Really? You sure? 
64, 64 Civil Rights Act. Yeah, what about the 64, so, 64 Civil Rights Act? Is, you know, because it is good because of the social conditions that black people faced where you needed to do something about it. Uh, it was too oppressive and something needed to be done. All right. And All right. I disagree with some of my libertarian friends on that issue. Right. All right. God bless. Go right, forward. Found, we have found something we agree with. Some agreement, some disagreement. It's a wonderful country. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks. September, there was a huge crowd with all this publicity, like 10 or 20,000 people. I decided I'd take the whole family there, and I was going to sing just two or three songs at the beginning of the program before Paul Robeson started. Thousands of angry locals surround the concert, protesting Robeson, Seeger, and the other performers. And uh, at the end of the concert, it was very slow getting out, but there was only one narrow dirt road leading out of the field. So there were seven of us in the car. Mm -hmm. We hadn't gone more than a few feet. I see glass in the road. And I say to the family, "Uh uh-oh, because around the corner was a pile of stones, each about as big as a tennis ball or a baseball. And a young man heaving them with all his force at every single car that came by. So there was crash. And then around the next corner was another pile of stones and then another crash. We had three windows on each side and a divided windshield, eight, and they were all broken not once but several times. So I think there must be between, uh, between 15 and 20 piles of stones. They must have been covered up with canvas or something, so we didn't notice them when we drove in. There was a policeman standing about 50 feet Mm -hmm. from somebody Mm -hmm. throwing stones, Mm -hmm. and I stopped the car and tried to roll the window down, but it was so splintered I only got it about an inch down. I shouted, Officer, aren't you going to do something? And he just shouted, Move on, move on. Mm. A riot ensued when concert doors were assaulted as they tried to leave. 140 people were injured. Now the interesting thing, and this is the important part of the story, 
signs went up in Peekskill saying, wake up America, bumper sticker sign, uh -huh. about five inches high and, mm -hmm. and two feet wide. Mm -hmm. Wake up America, mm -hmm. Peekskill did. About five weeks later, they all came down. They were on bumpers, they were in windows, in stores, in gas stations. What do you mean they all came down? The signs disappeared. There must have been thousands of them in Peekskill. Like taken off? They or? were taken off. They were taken off the bumpers of cars. They were, huh. And why? It seems that in Europe, they were horrified. They said those are the same signs that went up in Germany after Kristallnacht, when Hitler said, uh, you should throw stones, wake up Germany, Munich did, throw stones at all the Jewish storekeepers. And they said, is America going fascist? Well, a lot of people thought they were, but I was not convinced. Mm. I said, there's a stronger tradition of freedom of speech in this country than you would believe. Mm. And I was right. August 10th New York Times article titled Can Israel Find the Water It Needs proposed to explore Israel's water shortage, the result of a long drought and growing water consumption. The shortage has been particularly hard on Israel's small agricultural sector, and the piece begins and ends with sympathetic portraits of Israeli farmers who now, reporter Andrew Martin tells us, may have a bigger long-term problem than the rockets lobbed at them by Palestinians across the border. Martin lists all of the advanced agricultural methods and technologies Israel has employed to deal with its lack of water and its prospects for the future. But there's an elephant in this room that Martin studiously avoids, where the water comes from in the first place. Israel gets a major portion of its water from the occupied territories, and it doesn't share that water equitably with Palestinians the way it's required to under international law, which means that Palestinians, who perpetually suffer water shortages because they don't have access to water that's rightly theirs are suffering much worse than Israelis are during this drought. According to Israeli human rights group Betzalem, per capita consumption of water in the West Bank now stands at about two-thirds of the World Health Organization's recommended minimum amount. In parts of the northern West Bank, water consumption is one-third the WHO minimum, and the consumption figures include water for livestock. Betzalem notes that the average water consumption per capita of Israelis is 3.5 times that of Palestinians. Those sorts of figures would seem to be the bigger story, and they would go a long way toward explaining the rocket lobbed at the beleaguered Israeli farmer that Andrew Martin uses to set up his piece. Mm -hmm. 
Segregation of American schools was one of the first big victories for the civil rights movement in the United States. But more than half a century after the Supreme Court ruled that having separate systems for black and white children was unconstitutional, the issue is back in America's highest court. There are two cases which directly challenge the methods that are still being used to achieve a racial balance in the country's public education system. The court's ruling could have major implications for racial diversity in America's schools. One of the cases concerns the school system in Louisville, Kentucky, from where our correspondent James Kumarasamy reports. What time my clock at home? 7.59. Oh, we still, we still got some minutes left. You got your backpack and all your stuff together? Yes, ma'am. Oh, OK. Respectful school day preparations in Lois Houston's Louisville apartment. At 8.09 on the dot, Lois and her 11-year-old granddaughter, Hope, set out to catch the bus that will take her from this predominantly black neighbourhood to Norton Elementary School in a more affluent, largely white suburb half an hour away. I hope we don't got Mr. Bobby on the bus no more. It takes up a whole seat. <laughs> Shut up. As they wait here for the bus, Hope and her friends are unaware oh, that they are the inheritors of a system for redressing the racial imbalance in Louisville schools, which dates back to the civil rights era. Under what's now a voluntary system, the local authorities here ensure that no public school has less than 15% and no more than 50% of pupils who are African-American. Hope is about to set off on her daily journey into a different, more diverse world. You have a good day, Pass your spelling test. Be good. Amid often violent opposition, this system of busing was introduced to Louisville in the 1970s as a method of desegregating the city schools. Catherine Wallace, head of the Education Committee at the local branch of the Civil Rights Organization, the NAACP, vividly remembers those times. Bricks were thrown through buses. Uh, police officers were attacked simply because they were trying to protect the children. And it's just something you never forget. But now, as the U.S. Supreme Court hears the case of a local white mother, Crystal Meredith, who says that her son Joshua was denied a school place because of his colour, Catherine Wallace fears the wheel of history could be turning in an unsettling way. The same court which, more than 50 years ago, first ordered America's schools to be desegregated could now outlaw the very system which in Louisville has kept them that way. If you're allowed to change the system of integrated schools, eventually it's going to affect employment, housing, banking and finance. Everything that grew out of the desegregation of schools will be turned back. We're supposed to be a forward-thinking country, and this is like going back in time. Her concerns are shared by Pat Todd. As a young white teacher, she helped to organise the first busing plan in Louisville more than 30 years ago. Now she's in charge of allocating school places for the whole of Jefferson County, which includes Louisville. This is a direct challenge about keeping our schools racially integrated, being able to educate all of our children to high academic rigorous standards, and to prepare them to be sensitive to cultural, racial, ethnic differences so that they will better work together in the economic development of our community. 
really is by accident. I had a big, big day on the Fusashi Pegasus Derby. And so we got about, uh, there's a few under here. Lawyer Teddy Gordon is so proud of his wins at Louisville's famous Kentucky Derby that he keeps framed betting slips on his wall. The former civil rights lawyer, who's also proud of his integrated practice, is representing the white mother in this case. He says that in educational terms, the current system is one gamble that hasn't brought dividends. By the fourth grade in the Jefferson County Public Schools, 90% of the African-American students are already 25 to 30 achievement points behind their white counterparts. Why do we just have to have diversity or educational improvement? I want them both. He's supported by the Bush administration, whose Solicitor General is arguing on his behalf in court, and by some in Louisville's African-American community, such as Carmen Weathers. He may not agree with the merits of this particular case, but sitting in his front room, he explains that he's no fan of busing either. Where these two streets here intersect, 16 different buses come to pick up black children. So that means that kids who live within 100 feet of each other go to 16 different schools. Now, how is that for community development? The judicial branch. <laughs> Who was the first Supreme Court chief justice? At a fourth grade constitution class at Hope she Johnson said, School, a sea of black and white hands shoots up in an impressive of show Court. of eagerness. Stephanie. John Jay. John Jay. What does the Supreme Court do? Andrew. They make sure the laws are fair. Yes, they make sure the laws are fair. For this racially mixed bunch of young Louisville pupils, classroom integration is as natural as it is preferable. If you grow up in a school and there's only one certain race, when you become an adult you might meet somebody that's a different race and you might think that it's not okay to like them just because of your race. Well, that's why I really have like Spanish class because they're, they're starting to be like more Hispanic. Usually I don't think about it. I just think it counts about the inside instead of the outside because my friend who was in Korea, I didn't really matter that he looked different. I just mattered that he liked a lot of stuff that I did and we were fr really good friends. America's highest court will not be ruling on the merits of integration but on the methods used to achieve it. Yet in the eyes of many here, it will amount to the same thing. Walk with me. of journalists who think it's dangerous for Democrats to take positions that are strongly supported by the public continues to grow. On April 2nd, Washington Post reporter Jonathan Weissman explained. 
quote, Democratic lawmakers expect to open new fronts against the president when they return from their spring recess, including politically risky efforts to quickly close the prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, reinstate legal rights for terrorism suspects, and rein in what Democrats see as unwarranted encroachments on privacy and civil liberties allowed by the USA Patriot Act, close quote. But Weissman failed to provide any evidence that these positions are risky. As pointed out by Matt Stoller of the MyDD blog on Guantanamo detainees, an ABC News poll found that more than 70% of Americans oppose imprisoning suspects on Guantanamo indefinitely without charges. Stoller also notes that 2006 Republican campaigns that tried to portray Democrats concerned about civil liberties as soft on terrorism failed with voters. Weissman's remark about Democrats' politically risky effort to reinstate legal rights for terrorism suspects is offensive in a different way. Actually, terrorism suspects haven't had their rights taken away from them. Everyone lost their rights when the Bush administration declared that they can imprison anyone they want without trial. And the news media promoted notion that rights only protect criminals has contributed greatly to the erosion of those rights. Weissman in the Post would have you believe that standing up for civil liberties, Geneva, or the Constitution is risky, when in fact the only risk involved is that you'll meet with pundit disapproval. This place is a prison And these people aren't your friends Inhaling thrills their $20 bills And the tumblers are drained Again and again President Bush unveils the new impotence-only sex policy. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. At a press conference in the White House Rose Garden today, President Bush rolled out phase two of his administration's sex education policy. The new approach takes the old abstinence-only plan further to encourage sexual dysfunction through a proactive, impotence-based program. The president hailed sexual incapacity as the right response at the right time. It's my sincere belief that if you're going to combat the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, you got to promote the humiliating loss of manhood. In 2004, the Voluntary Teen Castration Act was narrowly passed by Congress but was denied funding by the Senate. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. I've been going crazy while you sleep Thinking of a language that the two of us can speak So Mr. Prehistoric, make your wheel And I'll breathe underwater cause I like the way you feel I said you're You've got to hang around in limo for as long as I take Next time, read my mind And I'll be good to you We're gift-wrapped kitty cats We're only turning to tags when we've got to fight But let's go 
Eskimo out into the blue. Come take my hand, understand that you can. Come on, I'll need you tonight. Come make my dreams only hard as it seems. Loving me is as easy as why. I'm just a love machine feeding my fantasy. Give me a kiss or three. Who hasn't had sex in a bathroom in Austin, all right? Come on. Hey, hey, Professor Rich, you know you're out there. Uh, anyway, so I, I get in the, uh, it's a, we go to a nice restaurant, wherever it is, I don't know. It's, you know, it's an okay restaurant. And it, there's a sign on, on the back bathroom. Mm -hmm. It says, the Dennis and whatever his wife's name is, Mary, I guess, uh, or whatever it is, I don't remember. Dennis and Mary Quaid Memorial Bathroom. In Not Brent. Meg Ryan. No, no, I don't think so. Um, and it says in parentheses, uh, don't forget to lock the door. So I came out and I said, is it what I think it is? They're like, yeah, they were having sex in there and they forgot to lock the door. And somebody just opened it up and everybody's like, look, Dennis Quaid having sex in the bathroom. And did he get rebuked by Congress? No. But look at this disparate treatment Larry Craig but Then gets. why is Dennis Quaid, how does he have the audacity to go around and try to ban to, to pass the the Hollywood uh, Defense of Marriage Amendment. <laughs> All right. So, uh, by the way, so I read in that story, like I said, that Cliff sent about this manhunt dot net owner, the liberal Republican uh, Crutchley, right? And I f read into manhunt apparently. Apparently, it is gigantic in the gay community. Man I had manhunt. Manhunt. I had no idea. So I had to do further research on manhunt.net. Okay, I didn't actually go to the site. Okay, uh, but so I, I went looked into it. Um, it's got nearly a million subscribers. Subscribers, people who pay money. Yeah, just like us, ten bucks a month. Okay, ten bucks a month from a million dudes. That's okay. like five hundred thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that's. It, I, <laughs> It's more than that, but uh, now, by the way, it doesn't add up because right. it, their revenue per month is in the ballpark of like 2.4 million dollars. <laughs> Losers, but probably can't even run the site. <laughs> and by the way, you know what it is? It's largely pictures of dudes' penises. Okay, you get in there, and and then so there was a very long article in Out Magazine about it. And the, the writer admitted that he was addicted to this site as well, and apparently everybody he knew in the gay community was addicted to the site. And why were they addicted to the site? Because it's not like porn for straight guys. And it's not porn. It's to hook up with people. It's to find other uh, gay guys in your area, right? For straight people, all we can do is look. And there's those mythical sites where you can actually hook up with women. Right, 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 right. We had a, a male porn star in here once, and he told me all about it. I checked it out. Doesn't really work, okay? Just word to the wise. Uh, what doesn't work? Like Adult Friend Finder and all those mythical sites that help you hook up with really hot chicks in your local area. Here's one thing that impresses me about Adult Friend Finder or Singles. Uh, I don't know what it is, but like when I travel and I get like a website and I'm I'm somewhere where there's a link to one of those websites, right? Mm -hmm. They know what city I'm in. Yeah, I know, that freaks me out, man. Like, I'm in Chicago, and they're like, and it's like, find a girl in Chicago. I'm like, how do you know I'm in Chicago? They know your IP address. I know, but it's still... I know, it's scary, it's still, man. It's still, it's like, you it's know... It's spooky. You're it's like, really find is. a girl in Chicago. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm married, and how do you know I'm in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> at at manhunt.net, they're like, 
Find a penis in your one-mile area. <laughs> right, exactly. Find a penis on your floor. Uh, no, but they, uh, this is quite literal. They do it, it when you get on there, and you, uh, you, I think you enter your address, but I'm not even sure. Uh, they're like, here are the men in your, literally in your one-mile square area, right? And then you go to their profile, and nine out of ten times is a dude's penis, mm -hmm. okay? Because that's what guys are interested in. Gay guys are interested in, right? So they're like, okay, not bad, not interesting. Oh, okay, that's the one that winner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so I came up with a couple of conclusions having looked at this for a long time. Uh, and here's number one: uh, there's a lot of gay dudes in the country. Okay. I know that it sounds comical, but until you get a sense of how, you know, uh, until you get into the weeds, if you will, <laughs> you don't get a sense of the enormity of it because. I'm reading the article, and they're saying, look, you can go to any town. He's like, here, pick a town. He tells the reporter, one of the guys who runs the site, says, uh, pick, pick any town in America, and I'll find you not just a gay guy, but a guy who's a manhunt subscriber in that town, any town. Okay? And he picks like a random town in North Dakota, 23-year-old male dude with a da -da 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 penis. Okay? And... Uh, and, you know, they can do this all night long, all day long. And the guy who wrote the article, he's like, look, I lived in a city. I was surrounded, right? And that's why I can go to the one guy and then the next and the next and the next. And so then as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, oh, damn it, gay guys have it so good. Okay, why? Because that guy, all he has to do is go on this one website and he's going to have guaranteed sex probably within the hour. Yeah, if you work out, uh -huh. keep yourself fit. Keep yourself up. Yeah. And that part of your life is good. The other part about uh, wouldn't it be great to be gay, the other part's not so good because people like Larry Craig and David Vitter. No, no, no. I understand that. Obviously, it has some downsides. <laughs> Fred Phelps. <laughs> but I, so I, again, I come, I think, uh, uh, two things. Uh, let me finish up the point about how big it is. 30% of the guys, are, <laughs> all right, 30% of the guys on Manhunt are uh, married. Not 30%? Yeah. Not married in Massachusetts or now California. Married to women, okay? 30%. And so it's not just Larry Craig. There are so many people out there. And, you know, every once in a while I know some people and I think, ah, dude, you know, he's married and stuff, but he'll, you know, right? And it turns out, yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> well, yeah. No, but because the thing is, like, no one thinks, oh, yeah, my husband's gay and he's on manhunt.net showing his penis to dudes, right? right. Nobody thinks that. But some husbands are. In fact, 300,000 husbands are, right? Right. And that's just on one website, right? Then I get no, to... No, it doesn't say anything about guys who are... Uh, uh, those are that's mar those married or straight, or profess to be straight. Ma married. Married. So then there are obviously other guys who are, you know, have girlfriends. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. right, exactly. They're claiming to be straight. And w this website and the Internet itself, by the way, allows more guys to be closeted. It's very ironic. I'm telling you, I get this article was fascinating uh, because they say uh, in 1993, 2% uh, of gay men had had their first uh, se sexual encounter with another man uh, having met him online. Okay, from people who they met when online. When was this? 1993. Okay. Well, I'm surprised it's even that many in 1993. In 2003, it's 200%. 61% of gay men had their first encounter, male-on-male -male encounter, with someone they met online. Okay, 61%. So what it's done is um, it's destroyed gay bars in a lot of places 
because people don't have to go to gay bars. They just go to a web, and they're like, okay, here, here's a dude. Boom, we're done. Right. And, of course, it's dude on dude. So they're like, hey, you want to have sex? Yeah. You too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they go. They're done. And every time I read these stories, I get jealous, right? <laughs> you know. You know me. I, you do, definitely. And I think, man, if this was how women were. Yeah, well, that look, that's all. It's always been true. You know, and it goes to show. Right, you. there's no difference. I mean, conservatives hear this conversation and they're 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 going ballistic. They're pulling their hair out. They're panicking about the Mexicans. They're they're <laughs> they're fearful of everything, uh, thinking that gay people are evil uh, uh, and 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 are going to undo society as we know it. When of course the gay guys that we would if you could, if if we could go online and guaranteed meet a woman that night and pick from them. Yeah. Oh, I got a little repartee going here with four or five women. I'm going to pick uh, Cynthia. Yeah, we'd never leave the computer except for meeting those women in your place or her place. Right, okay. and then well, and then when you come back home afterwards, you you know, then you can watch TV. Right, and by the way, and that's what's happening with the gay community. And so here's my final two points on it. it Once again, the real problem is women. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, it is. It's true. <laughs> well, of course, now people could view it otherwise, but uh, it goes to the nature of men. Okay, this is the core of men. If they can, they would have sex endlessly with different people, always with different people. That's, so, that's the key. Right. So why did John Edwards cheat on his wife? It's the oldest thing in the book. Because he could. She threw, himself, she threw herself at him, right? And would he have cheated on, uh, on his wife with other people? Probably, if they had thrown her, themselves at him as much. Right, if he had to and pursue it himself, uh, maybe not. And a lot of times your husband or your boyfriend doesn't cheat on you. Why? Because there aren't chicks throwing themselves at him. And I tell you what, the people... <laughs> I, I, I thought you'd make you feel better tonight. No, I'm, look, I'm keeping it but real. If your husband's faithful, it's just because he's unattractive. If he's getting uh, things thrown at him and he's faithful, you should build a statue to him. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I am, of course, going to be reminding you about the nomination process for the podcast awards that are going on right now. Um, it's greatly appreciated if you can take the time to nominate the show. But before we get into that, I, I wanted to mention specifically why I think that now is a good time for you to recommit yourself to supporting this show. Uh, you know, I know maybe you feel like you need a good reason to, to jump on board, and I'm hoping I can give it to you. Uh, basically, in the last year of this show, we have uh, frankly been struggling a bit. Uh, we've, we've gone through some times where we were, were able to keep the show going at a decent pace, and there were definitely some times when we were not able to keep the show going at a decent pace. And I, and I know, I mean, obviously it's not just frustrating uh, for me and, and for the production people uh, behind the show but uh but for you obviously for the for the listeners it's incredibly frustrating to just r really never know when another show's coming out um and for sometimes weeks uh you know several weeks to go by without a show and and that's just lame and and frankly the show had not been receiving the attention that i feel it deserves and uh to some extent that was my fault um, I mean, it wasn't anybody else's fault besides mine, 
Um, and to some extent, it was my fault in my personal decisions, and to some extent, it was uh, the circumstances. But I'm happy to announce that uh, I have made some uh, serious decisions, been thinking about this recently, and I have uh, fully re-engaged in the show, rededicated myself, and, and plan to give this project the attention that it deserves. Um, I, uh, you know, this show is incredibly important to me personally, and I feel that it's a good service, and, and I hope that it's important to others out there, but, but just personally, um, this is, this is a, a project that, that means a lot to me, and, and I, I just, I couldn't let it, uh, flounder any longer, and I have rededicated myself by way of, um, I mean, basically just readjusting my time. Uh, I have decided to start getting up just a couple hours earlier every day and spending a couple hours before going to work, uh, working on the podcast so that, you know, my evenings can be free. You know, <laughs> the, the problem before was I'd come home from work and then be too tired or, or lazy or both to, uh, to work on the, the podcast and then it just didn't get done. But uh, changing it around and, and beginning to work on it in the morning is is something that I think is going to work. So for a long time, we've been averaging about two shows per month, and my hope is to begin averaging two shows per week. Uh, I think this is incredibly doable, uh, especially with your help and the, and the new system that is posted and fully functional on the website for sending in clips. Basically, we use uh, everything.com, they have a search system that allows you to search with text, searching through audio and video that they have posted. And we have a, a, a great interface with their website posted in the find and send clips section of our website. So check that out if you have you know a few minutes that you can dedicate and uh, you know take 30 minutes and find uh, two or three clips and send them into the show. And that helps the shows get made. I mean, it's it's that easy. So um, I just want to let you know that the show is on. It, it's on a great trajectory right now. We are working on uh, exciting things behind the scenes that uh, I will be letting you know about as uh, as the next few episodes unfold. And um, I just want to let you know that I'm really excited about what we're doing. Um, great new features uh, to the website, new uh, ideas, new projects uh, going on, all on top of more episodes. I mean, that's what it's really all about is, we hope, quadrupling the number of average episodes that come out, um, or the average number of episodes. I, I hope you all agree that, uh, that none of our episodes are average. So that's the plan. That's the excitement. Uh, I think we're going great places, and I really hope that you see uh, in the show and sense in in uh, in me and and the work that is going into this, the effort that's going into it, and I hope that you can respond in kind and really help push this show forward by way of nominating us for a podcast award. Uh, leaving us reviews in iTunes and, and all of the things we ask. Just kind of supporting the show, visiting the website, leaving comments, uh, giving feedback. You can send direct 
feedback to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. But, you know, we love if you leave comments in the show notes so that other people can can respond to your comments as well. And uh, and just engaging in the show, um, maybe even donating to the show. We have a new donation page up and um, and we've we've even included a way to uh, subscribe. uh, Not, you know. You're listening to a podcast, so you know what it is to subscribe. But I mean, uh, subscribe with donations. So if you wanted to uh, donate, you know, a small amount, but maybe on a regular basis to help support the show, uh, that's that would be great. Um, you know, hosting fees and and for the website and the podcast, which are two different things for us. Actually, uh, they come straight out of pocket, and and you know, obviously the time that goes into the show. Uh, is is all just because we love doing this so so any financial support to to help keep it going uh goes right back into the show and and is fantastic so again just real quick the details on uh the the most important thing of the day is uh nominating us for a podcast award all you have to do go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com right at the top of the home page is not only a link right to the podcast awards, but also right below it, instructions on exactly what you need to do. It's really simple. You just put in the name of the show, the website, uh, your name and email address to confirm. Leave us a great comment there about why you're nominating the show and submit it. It it couldn't be easier. Uh, And of course, while you're in the mood uh, for leaving us great comments, uh, please take the the time and, uh, and... Give us a great comment in the iTunes Music Store as well. A link to do that, again, right on the website, on, on the right side of the page. And, uh, and these are the ways uh, to promote the show and, uh, and help us spread our message. So if you like what we do, uh, help other people find it. It's, it, um, it really comes down to you guys. We, we can only promote the show so much. Uh, in in every way we can find, but it really comes down to the listeners uh, supporting the show uh, online and really what could be more effective than telling your friends about it. Tell your friends about the show and and help spread the word and uh, we'll all be uh, better off for it. At least least that's what we hope. So that is it for today. More exciting announcements to come in future shows. Please stay tuned. Uh, hang out, listen to the end of the show for all of these great announcements as we go along. Um, but that's it for today. So from uh, from me, coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay. It's been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from the bestofthelefttpodcast.com. Thought now black and white You took a picture that wasn't right